Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, July 25th. In today's news, Joe Biden lashes out at Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, previewing a contentious debate next week. A federal judge blocks President Trump's latest asylum ban. And the U.S. and Europe have sharply different visions for how to patrol the Persian Gulf as Iran looks for ways to de-escalate. But first, the big idea and the big story. Bob Mueller spent more than two years ignoring taunts tweeted and barked from President Trump. But on Wednesday, over the course of six hours, two hearings, and in his own understated and at times juddering way, the former special counsel finally responded to the president. He firmly pushed back on the public relations offensive the president and his team have waged to undermine Mueller and impugn the integrity of his investigators. Testifying before Congress, he agreed with the assertion from House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, the Democrat from California, that seeking campaign assistance from a foreign power is unpatriotic and wrong. He also said he found Trump's praise of WikiLeaks to be problematic, noting that the president's pro-WikiLeaks statements gave some hope or some boost to what is and should be illegal activity. Mueller clarified that his investigation and his 448-page redacted report did not, in fact, totally exonerate the president, contrary to Trump's repeated claims. Nor did the report say there was no obstruction of justice. Mueller also defended his prosecutors, which he had failed to do during that May news conference, becoming increasingly animated as he said his main hiring criteria was people who could do the job quickly and seriously and with integrity. He agreed that it was, in his word, generally true that the Trump campaign built its messaging strategy around stolen documents, then lied to cover it up, and that the president's written answers to Mueller's team were not always truthful either. And he said he didn't subpoena Trump because he knew that the president would engage in a protracted legal fight. And for the country's sake, he wanted to wrap up the investigation as quickly as possible. Finally, Mueller dismissed Trump's frequent claims that Russian interference in the 2016 election was a hoax, while also rejecting the president's charge that his investigation was a witch hunt. Mueller's appearance was hard fought, painstakingly negotiated and highly anticipated. But ultimately, his turn as a reluctant and at times uncomfortable witness didn't change the political dynamics. Both Democrats and Republicans have largely made up their minds, and the hearings simply allowed them to burrow further into their tribal, already entrenched camps. Even Democrats who favor impeachment acknowledged that Mueller's performance didn't provide the made-for-TV moment for which they had hoped. Trump spent nearly the entire day watching and tweeting about the cable news spectacle. He didn't leave his residence until late in the afternoon. Then he went on the South Lawn to criticize Mueller and the Democrats. Perhaps the bigger problem for Democrats, though, is that Mueller appeared confused at times. He stumbled over his answers, and he frequently implored his questioners to repeat their queries, even though the sound in the room was just fine. The 74-year-old's sometimes halting performance led Republicans to suggest that Mueller was either unfamiliar with the report or worse, not as mentally sharp as he should be to lead such a sweeping investigation of a sitting president. Top Trump allies like Rudy Giuliani even mocked the Vietnam War veteran who received a Purple Heart and led law enforcement in the days after the 9-11 attacks. 
The immediate upshot for Democrats who faced turmoil within their caucus for refusing to begin impeachment proceedings was that the hearings appeared to do little to galvanize congressional sentiment. Before the spectacle going in yesterday morning, many pro-impeachment Democrats were predicting that Mueller's testimony would inspire a new wave of impeachment backers, potentially two dozen or more congressmen, to get on the impeachment train. But by Wednesday afternoon, almost no new Democrats in the House had joined calls to start proceedings. That may be a silver lining for Nancy Pelosi. The speaker does not want to impeach the president. She hasn't changed her mind. She wants to keep the focus on pocketbook issues. Ultimately, though, the bottom line is this. Yesterday showed that Democrats really only have one option left to end Trump's presidency. That is the 2020 election. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, looking to the 2020 election, Joe Biden tore into Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris in a shift to more aggressively counter his opponents. Speaking in Detroit at the NAACP convention, he was asked by a moderator if his views on mass incarceration have evolved. The former vice president said the focus of criminal justice needs to shift from incarceration to rehabilitation. Booker, who also spoke at the NAACP conference yesterday, called Biden's solution inadequate. He described Biden as the architect of mass incarceration. When Biden left the stage, he was asked about Booker's comments and responded emphatically by trying to turn attention to Booker's tenure as mayor of the troubled city of Newark before he became a senator. Biden said Booker's police department was stopping and frisking people, mostly African-American men, leading the Obama administration to intercede. Biden said the Justice Department took action against Booker's police department to hold them accountable. Biden also seethed about Harris's attacks on his busing record during the previous debate. He told reporters that he regrets being overly polite in responding to her criticism. And he said he won't make that mistake again. Number two, a federal judge in California blocked Trump's latest asylum ban yesterday. The policy aims to curtail Central American migration across the southern border by requiring asylum seekers to apply in countries they pass through on the way to the U.S., particularly Mexico or Guatemala. U.S. District Judge John Tegar, who halted another version of the Trump administration's asylum ban last year, said a mountain of evidence shows that migrants cannot safely seek asylum in Mexico. He says the rule likely violates federal law by categorically denying asylum to almost anyone crossing the border. U.S. law generally allows anyone who sets foot on U.S. soil to apply for asylum. The Trump team promises to appeal to the Ninth Circuit and then, if necessary, the Supreme Court. Down in the Northern Triangle, where a lot of this fight is playing out, Guatemalans fear that Trump's latest threats to retaliate if their country doesn't sign a far-reaching migration asylum agreement might cripple the local economy. Trump warned on Tuesday that he will slap tariffs on Guatemala's exports or tax the billions of dollars in remittances that its migrants send home to the Central American country. He was reacting to President Jimmy Morales' decision to cancel a trip that he was supposed to make to D.C. last week, where he was planning to sign a safe third country agreement. Then he backed out at the last minute. Guatemalans were faced with another potential crisis. U.S. penalties could pummel the economy, which is already struggling. Their elites down there fear that the U.S. penalties will destabilize the country by driving poverty rates higher, creating more political instability. They also worry that that will then prompt more Guatemalans to head for the United States as they lose their jobs or income, frankly, making the crisis at the southern border worse. And down on the southern border here in the United States, every day we're hearing more 
deeply unsettling stories about what's being done by the U.S. government in our names. Francisco Irwin Galicia, that 18-year-old U.S. citizen who was unlawfully locked up for 23 days by Customs and Border Patrol agents, says that he lost 26 pounds during his time in a detention center in Texas under conditions so bad they almost drove him to sign a paper to self-deport. Francisco said he wasn't allowed to shower and his skin was dry and dirty when he got out yesterday. He and 60 other men were crammed in an overcrowded holding area where they slept on the floor and were given only aluminum foil blankets. Some men sleep on restroom floors because there's not room in the main holding cell. Ticks bit some of the men. Some are very sick, but many are afraid to go to the doctor because, according to Francisco, the Border Patrol officers told them that their stay would start over if they sought medical treatment, that they'd have to go to the back of the line. So they don't get medical treatment, they get sicker, and then they get everyone else sick too. Number three, the U.S. and Europe have sharply different plans for patrols in the Persian Gulf. As tensions have risen lately, the exact mandate remains uncertain, with two separate and competing plans under discussion. Meanwhile, Iran has rejected any need for Western ships to patrol the waters along its southern coast at all, pledging to secure the Strait of Hormuz itself. The U.S. has said that it envisions a scheme whereby nations would protect ships that carry their own flag, but that joint operations would be designed to carry out surveillance on waterways. British officials have emphasized that their plan would be about ensuring freedom of navigation for everyone, a name that Tehran could theoretically support as well. Iran hinted that it's seeking some kind of compromise, some kind of off-ramp, after President Hassan Rouhani suggested yesterday that his country may release a British tanker that it seized last week in exchange for the return of an Iranian tanker that was seized the week before. Rouhani's explicit extension of the offer may have been a gesture toward reducing tensions. Speaking after a cabinet meeting, Rouhani alluded to indirect, behind-the-scenes secret talks with the United States. And while Mueller was testifying, Trump, in the White House, vetoed Congress's attempt to block arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Trump vetoed three separate resolutions that passed with the support of many Republican senators, but short of a veto-proof majority, that would have stopped arms sales benefiting Riyadh and the United Arab Emirates. The sales, which are now going to go forward, will replenish a depleted Saudi arsenal. It's depleted because it's been used extensively against civilians in Yemen's civil war. Many lawmakers also object to the idea of rewarding Saudi leaders like Mohammed bin Salman with the highest quality weapons in the world after the despicable murder of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi. The Trump administration insists that these arms sales are crucial to protect the region against the threat from Iran. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, July 25th. Thanks for listening. I hate to keep asking, but we really would love to know what you like or don't like about The Daily 202 podcast. If you could take our survey, I'd be grateful. And you'll be entered into our sweepstakes for $500 Amazon gift cards. The survey is at WashingtonPost.com slash 202 survey. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post's presidential and constitutional podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. 
Moonrise re-examines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. It's one that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.